0: In a 2014 survey published in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, only 26.3% out of the 7,900 respondents said that they have an advance directive expressing their wishes for end-of-life care. Without an advance directive, the burden of deciding end-of-life care often falls on family and friends, when patients are no longer able to make decisions regarding their own care. What do physicians need to know when guiding families through these tough situations? You are listening to Everyday Family Medicine on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Caudle. Joining me today is Dr. Marianne Holler, Medical Director of Hospice and Palliative Programs for the VNA Health Group of New Jersey. Dr. Holler, welcome to ReachMD.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Cuaro, and I'm very happy and excited to be discussing this important topic with you.
0: I'm very excited as well. I would love it if you could take us through your current views on a patient's role in end-of-life care decisions today. Do we as clinicians do a good job of empowering our patients to make these difficult decisions?
1: I think overall, that's a two-part answer. First, we, of course, want the best for our patients, but In wanting the best for our patients, we also tend to protect them from maybe delivering bad news or maybe it's not a skill set we developed in our training. We're trained that the patient has A and we do B and we don't step back and ask the patient where they are and how that treatment may help or not help them. So patients and families can't make good decisions if they don't have good information. So For instance, if somebody's in the intensive care unit, we have multiple specialties involved in the patient's care. So each doctor comes in and talks about their part of the body. Oh, the lungs are getting better. There's so much oxygen they're needing. And then the kidney doctor comes in and we'll speak about the creatinine. The heart doctor will come in, but no one. we don't do a good job of putting the whole picture together. So the patient or the family can make
0: a good decision about the whole individual. What ethical considerations do you think through when you're evaluating whether a treatment choice will ultimately be a benefit or a burden for the patient?
1: When I start every single consult and I meet a patient or a family for the first time, I always tell patients and family I've read everything about you, you know, from a medical perspective, I've looked at your scans, I've looked at your laboratory studies. But tell me about you. Or if it's a family, tell me about your family member. What's going on physically, functionally, emotionally, spiritually? What were they able to do a month ago, three months ago, six months ago? Tell me about Christmas. You know, how was that time period? Is the patient better, worse, or the same as they were? So when I start with a patient or a family, I want to know, more about what that patient valued and where they are in the trajectory of their illness so i can help guide them in making decisions based on what information they have before them
0: it really sounds like you're looking really at the whole person and you're right it's something that we all need to be reminded to do how have advances in medical technology over the past few decades changed the way that we as physicians approach end-of-life care
1: a hundred years ago it was pretty simple it was pretty clear Patients became ill. They declined over time. The family doctor was kind of a gradle to grave part of the family's life and the whole illness. And as patients declined, they stayed home. If somebody died in an institution, the family always thought, oh, didn't they have anybody that cared about them. And now, 100 years later, we have flipped the paradigm of dying on their head. Now, if somebody doesn't want everything done, they say, wow, don't you care about your mom? So, I think what changed is right in the middle of the last century, from World War II to the early 70s, we started developing some amazing technology that was able to change the outcome for patients and their families. Heart surgeries, ventilators, CPR. In the early 70s, we developed the 911 system. So, now we could bring technology, everything right to where the patient is to get them to an institution. To change the outcome for these patients, whether they were in motor vehicle crashes, heart attacks, they overdosed, were poisoned, drowned, whatever happened, that's what those technologies were developed for. The difficulty is that now we've started to use those same interventions as end-of-life tools, which they were never really designed to be. They were designed for interventions that we had and developed in our arsenal to change the outcomes for patients. And now, because of all this technology, we're not really sure when to use it, when not to use it, when to offer it to patients, when not to offer it, and then we hand it all over to the family. Oh, now we're going to put a pacemaker in. Now we're going to put a feeding tube in. Now we're going to do a tracheostomy without stepping back and saying, is this a good intervention for this particular patient at that time? So the technology is not the problem. It's We haven't developed a way to understand how to use it in patients with advanced illnesses and when the end of life actually
0: arrives. Hmm. I think that's very insightful. I think it might be helpful for our, our listeners if you could just tell us the difference between hospice care and palliative care. As a family physician myself, I think that sometimes these services are underutilized. And I think it could be very helpful if people just have sort of a working knowledge of really what the scope is of each.
1: I think that is such an excellent question because no matter how much education or how much the palliative care teams are around, there's still a misconception between palliative care and hospice. So the easiest way that I explain it to people is palliative care, is an intervention for any patient at any stage of an advanced illness. So, from when they're diagnosed with a life-limiting illness, all the way up to the trajectory of -of end-of-life care. So, if you're diagnosed with COPD, congestive heart failure, having symptoms that are preventing you from maximizing the quality of your life and living every day to the fullest, palliative care can help. What's happening physically, emotionally, or spiritually that's preventing you from living your best life? Hospice is palliative care at the end of life, and that means that your illness has reached a point. Where, at best guess or a best estimate, as clinicians would be, that you have less than six months to live as a result of this illness.
0: That's very helpful, and I hope that our listeners will find that helpful as well. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Everyday Family Medicine on ReachMD. I am Dr. Jennifer Caudle, and I'm speaking with Dr. Marianne Holler, Medical Director of Hospice and Palliative Programs for the VNA Health Group of New Jersey. So let's continue on. I understand that you developed an alternative method for setting up care plans with your patients. How do you approach treatment decisions, and can you talk to us about the care plans that you set up?
1: The way that I approach a patient is I never go in and tell them, oh, I saw that you had a stroke, or I see on your CAT scan that your tumor is growing. Stay away from providing information. (laughs) So what I want to do the first time is I ask them, the question, what if they told you about your illness or your family member's health at this time? That, in a very small period of time, gives me a snapshot of what was said versus what was heard, because it gives me the opportunity to listen and say, "Wow, they are not on the same page. They're not reading the same book. They have not heard what the medical team is trying to say. So by asking that question, tell me what they've told you about your illness then I can get very pointed with them in terms of, say, they have cancer, and it's advanced. And I'll say, well, is your understanding the chemotherapy to cure you or to control your cancer? So I ask very specific questions. Then the second part, I tell them where maybe they're understanding or misunderstanding the information that they've been given. That gets everybody in the same boat rowing in the same direction, if you will. And then based on that information, I want to know what the goal is. So, for instance, I had a woman recently, 88 years old, very, very healthy senior citizen, riding her bike around her neighborhood and had a massive stroke. So, I said to the family, what if they told you? I showed them the scans, went over everything. When I asked what the goal was, they kept going back to she was riding her bike right before this happened. So, I have to honestly tell them that's not a goal that I can help with because this stroke was catastrophic or kind of help match the goal to what the reality is of what medically is going on. And... People appreciate that level of honesty rather than, oh, well, let's put a feeding tube in, let's put her on a vent, let's get a trach because their goal is to get her back riding a bicycle. And, you know, if it's a catastrophic event in an 88 year old, we pretty much know that that level of independence is not going to be able
0: to be returned to. I like hearing about specific ways that you communicate with your patients. I think they're really great examples and good guidance for all of us who are listening about ways to ask questions and ways to make sure that the questions we ask really promote understanding and transparency and and really help us understand our patients best. So I really appreciate you giving even those specific examples. It's very helpful. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was the Choose Wisely program that's been set forth by CMS. Can you talk about that program and what strengths or setbacks you see coming from it?
1: Choosing Wisely is a campaign started by the American Board of Internal Medicine and along with 70 medical subspecialties came together in a consensus to start the Choosing Wisely campaign in 2012. And basically the nuts and bolts are, are we selecting the right patient for the right treatment at the right time? And the aim of the whole campaign is to decrease the use of unnecessarily and potentially harmful interventions for patients with life-limiting illnesses. It's not so much a list or a recommendation of do this and don't do that. It's just that are you choosing medical interventions that are supported by evidence-based medicine? One of the best examples I can give you is when people select feeding tubes talk about feeding tubes. So everybody at the end of life eats less. It's a normal progression of every illness. We don't eat our last meal and pass away. So when people stop eating or decrease PO intake, the medical community jumps very quickly to, well, let's put a feeding tube in or not let's put it in, but offering it as an alternative. Well, what's the goal? Is the patient aspirating? Did the patient stop eating? Is it a mechanical difficulty with swallowing? Is it the illness? To sit down and say, a person not eating is not necessarily the default to putting in a feeding tube. But we continuously do this (laughs) as clinicians. So when I see somebody and I say, oh, your dad has a feeding tube, like know the science behind it. Well, they put it in because he was aspirating. Well, We know in advanced dementia that feeding tubes don't prevent aspirations, so you put a feeding tube in to prevent something that's still going to happen. So it's those types of decision makings with patients and families. What is being proposed to what kind of patient at what time in their illness? Is it appropriate? Is it going to add a burden physically, financially, emotionally? to the patient or to the family, and what's the goal, and are we going to get to those? Are we going to get to the outcome? So the goal of the Choosing Wiser campaign is really to spur conversations between patients and providers about what the options are, what the benefits, and what the burdens of those options
0: are. Before we wrap up, are there any other perspectives that you'd like to add or reiterate regarding end of life care choices from your perspective and really just how physicians out there who are listening can be more mindful of the work that we need to do and how to best help our patients
1: we need to normalize these conversations not talking about it is not going to make it not happen and talking about it isn't going to make it happen like if you think about yourself as like a patient just yourself and you as a provider we think ahead and plan for everything. We plan what we're going to eat for dinner. We plan what we're going to wear to work, maybe at the last minute, maybe two days ahead of time, but we plan everything. We plan family vacations. Are we going to get together for different holidays? But 100% of our patients at some point in the trajectory of illness are going to face these difficult conversations, and we need to normalize them. Now, I talked to a physician. A few months ago, and he says as part of a wellness check on their 60th birthday, he introduces living wills and end-of-life care conversations. And I thought, what a brilliant thing and a forward thinking to do as a primary care provider. Just normalize it. You're due for your colonoscopy, you're due for your mammogram, whatever is on that checklist. He set 60 years old for like the general population. Now, if somebody has an advanced illness or diagnosed with a life limiting illness, he introduces it sooner. But I think we need to normalize as a society, as patients and providers. Normalize these conversations. And I always tell patients, nothing takes the place of the conversation. You can write everything down that you want in a living will or a post form. But if you don't sit down and have a conversation with your family, that's more important.
0: I think those are fantastic points. And before I let you go, though, you did mention something I think is really interesting and helpful. Are there resources that you might recommend to anyone who's listening if they feel like they need to read up a little bit more about resources that are available? Or you mentioned the pulse form, you know, where would you suggest someone go if they feel like they need to brush up on their end of life discussions and offering appropriate options?
1: First of all, Choosing Wisely has a website choosingwisely.org and that can take a clinician through or a patient through what that's all about. Each state has their Pulse form. New Jersey, I practice in New Jersey, so we have the practitioner order for life sustaining treatment. And that our form here in New Jersey will address what is your goal? Do you want to be put on a ventilator? Do you want artificial nutrition hydration? So, checking with your state societies in terms of Department of Health usually can get some guidance. Families tend to go to lawyers to have living wills drawn up, but for the real-world application, sometimes those are difficult because they're drawn up by the legal community and not the medical community. So, pulse forms are designed as a conversation between patients and their providers. The other thing is there's a lot of books that have been out recently that have spurred the conversation. Dr. Gowandi's book, Being Mortal, and another book I recommend to families is The Conversation by Dr. Angelo Valandis. And that's good for providers and for patients to how to have these conversations. And if you're not good at them as a physician, that's okay. All of us were taught a lot of things. We were taught how to deliver a baby, but I don't think I would try to deliver a baby unless I had to. <laughs> I would defer to my colleague who is an OBGYN. So we have to think in terms of end-of-life care the same way. If you're not good at these conversations, that's okay. But who amongst your colleagues maybe has that skill set?
0: Oh, those are very wise words. And I really can't thank you enough, Dr. Holler, for joining us today. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Dr. Quodra. I'm so happy to participate in this program.
0: I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Caudill, and to access this episode and others in the series and to download the ReachMD app, please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can be part of the knowledge. We encourage you to leave comments and to share this program with your colleagues. Thank you so much for listening.